Um, if you were here last week, I, I kind of took it off at the last second and, and just spoke, but we talked a little bit last week. We opened the series on Job for Lent, and we talked a little bit about some of the context and the history of when Job was written down, and we talked about how that story is probably the oldest story that is in the Bible, and it's been carried down through oral tradition until it was finally written down right after the Babylonian exile. So I'd like to start this morning by just briefly telling the story for those of you who might not be familiar with Job or who maybe just need a refresher. And I just want us to keep in mind that this this is poetry too, right? So the beginning of Job opens, and I pictured it almost like a split screen, right? And on the one side, you see Job, who was this happy and prosperous man, and you'd see it like the screen panning out on all of these like lovely rolling hills of pastures, and he's got thousands and thousands of cattle. And then you see him, he's got a large family with lots of kids, and he does a lot of feasting with his family. So this is going on on one side of the screen. On the other side of the screen, you see a picture of the throne room of heaven, whatever that looks like to you. And God is there and some angels and this personified form of Satan is hanging out. And the audio is going on on this side of the screen. And it, it sounds like it's almost ridiculous the way it sounds. It starts with God going up to Satan and being like, hey, Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, almost word for word, been roaming the earth, going place to place. And God's like, have you seen Job? Because man, that guy is righteous. And Satan says, Well, yeah, of course he's righteous. He's got everything he could ever want. He's got a great family. He's got wealth. He has success. He's got standing in his community. But man, if you took that away, he would curse you like anybody else. And so God's like, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Tell you what, you go down there, you do anything you want to that guy, and we'll see what happens. Just don't harm Job himself. And so then we see Satan go down and just wreak havoc on Job's life. Well, the second chapter is is pretty similar, except this time as Satan comes up into the throne room of God after Job has lost everything, right? He's lost his family, he's lost all of his cattle, he's lost his home, he's lost his kids, presumably grandkids, I would think so too, his livestock, and he hasn't cursed God. So Satan goes up and goes, okay, tell you what, if, if I harm his skin, if I actually hurt his body, then he'll curse you. And God says, sure, because this God is awesome, right? (laughs) So Satan does, and Job gets sores from his head to his feet. So these, these opening chapters are a little bit odd, and we have to keep in mind that they were added to the story later, probably to give some framework to the main body of the poem. But the oldest part of the poem starts in chapter three and goes through chapter 41, and it actually starts with just a distraught and suicidal Job. And we're actually not even told exactly what has happened to him. We just know that his life has fallen apart. And so we see Job lamenting, and then for the next dozens of chapters, we see three of his friends come to visit him, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And each of these friends gives three different speeches to Job, and they accuse him of being the cause of his own suffering. Right? So clearly this happened to you, Job, because you did something wrong. And then after each of these three speeches, Job responds by insisting that he's innocent. And the only exception to that, just for those of you who like, you know, structure sorts of things, um, the very last friend, Zophar, his last speech seems to have been lost to history. And so a scribe later added a different friend named Elihu to replace that final speech, and it's arguably worse than all the other three. (laughs) 
And then God just sort of comes in in the last few chapters to tell Job that basically he's a human, so he can't possibly understand God's ways, so get over it. And then the final chapter, which was also added later, like probably when the first two chapters was, tells us that even though God seemed to be frustrated with Job, God actually agreed that Job was probably an innocent victim and that his friends were wrong. And then God tells Job, why don't you just pray for your friends? And then God gives him another spouse and kids and then twice as much wealth and status, the end. You know, one Jewish commentary that I read this week described that ending as crass. (laughs) A congregant a beloved congregant who I really respect, described that last chapter last Sunday to me as insulting. And I agree with them both. (laughs) Because it's not like it makes everything okay for Job, right? That suddenly he's got a new spouse and new kids. You know, if you've ever lost a child, as that congregant had, or if you've ever lost a spouse, you know, just like replacing them with new ones is not going to just make everything okay. So then that causes us to ask, so why is this kind of crass and insulting book in the Bible? And we touched on it a little bit last week, this idea that it, like, in the place in history that it occupies, which is probably early monotheism, it's asking pretty profound questions, right? That if there is only one God, is this God good? And where is this God when we suffer? And what role does God play in this? And so this week, as I've been trying to tackle, actually the last couple weeks, I've been reading several different commentaries and books, just trying to get a better sense of how other people have handled this text, especially in the Jewish tradition from which it comes. And there are several lenses that I think are helpful that Ken and I will sort of unpack through these weeks. I mentioned Gerard last week. We'll probably go after that a little bit more later. But this week, I want to talk about a view posed in one of the Jewish commentaries that I've been working through. And essentially, this view of Job challenged me to ask, What if this book is less about the source of all human suffering and more about the spiritual transformation of one man in the face of personal suffering? So what if this book is less about the source of all human suffering? Because this idea of God and Satan placing wagers on humans is an unsatisfying answer to why we suffer. And I don't think it's actually meant to be a real answer. And it's more about the transformation of a man whose faith was formed in the setting of wealth, happiness, and status, and who had his idyllic life burst open from calamities that forced him to look at the shallowness of the spirituality that he had inherited. So the rabbi that I was reading was Rabbi Moshe Greenberg, and he wrote this. He said, how can faith nurtured in prosperity prove truly deep-rooted and not merely a spiritual adjunct of good fortune? Right, this was written in the aftermath of the Holocaust that he's writing this. He says, the book of Job tells how one man suddenly awakened to the anarchy rampant in the world and yet his attachment to God outlived the ruin of his tidy system. So remember that, that split screen that we had in chapter one. Right? Job, for him, the world has worked up until the point of his tragedies. And he personifies every person of faith who when confronted with an absurd disaster in life has to either throw away their faith or forge a new path forward, right? So his previously tidy spirituality told him that because he was a good man, he was blessed. We see this in Job chapter 12, he he says this. He says, I wish my life could be the same as it was a few months ago when God watched over me and cared for me. God's light shined above me so that I could walk through the darkness. I wish for the days when I was successful, when I enjoyed God's friendship. See, he's equating God's friendship with his success. 
and his blessing in his home. He says, God all-powerful was still with me then and my children were all around me. Life was so good. I washed my feet in cream and had plenty of the finest oils. I kind of want to wash my feet in cream. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so in his mind, God has the back of like healthy, happy, successful people while people who are maybe evil or less successful are just reaping what they sow. Right, so that the poorest among us or those who are suffering somehow are responsible for their own misery. And I thought, gosh, there's just nothing new under the sun, is there? Right, that narrative permeates our culture too with the prosperity gospel. So government and justice systems worked for Job until they didn't, right? And breeding livestock and creating wealth was easy for him until it wasn't. And we don't know anything about his background. Maybe he inherited his wealth. Maybe he was just particularly gifted, smart, and able-bodied. You know, some people have a knack for business and they don't understand when other people can't make money in the same way they do. You know, up until the point he lost everything, he probably didn't see much of a disparity between how the world worked for him and how it worked for those of less means than he had. Or maybe he felt like he was entitled to the disparity. And now he's faced with this idea that the world doesn't work the way that he thought it did. Right? His speeches start to show the collapse of this former worldview as you work your way through. It's like for the first time in his life, he's become aware of this messiness and this injustice. And his appeals to his friends and to God show that he's used to an orderly system. Job 10.2, he says, I shall say to God, do not convict me. Inform me while you, why you accuse me. Right? Here's what happens. You lay a charge and then I address it. Job 13.18, look, I've laid out my case. I know I'm right. Who would make a plea against me? Right? I'm innocent. It's clear to everybody. How can this be happening? Yeah, I was looking, there's a U of M law professor, which I wondered actually if a couple of you knew, Samuel Gross. You know him? Yeah. And Lisa there, yeah. He keeps track of unjust convictions in the US, and he estimates that at least 4% of people on death row who are executed are innocent. Right? And we can hear this in Job. Like, look, I've laid out my case. I know I'm right. What more can I do? Job 31, would that I had someone to hear, ma- hear me out. Here's my mark. Let Shaddai, God, answer me and let my accuser indict his writ. Right, so Job has an expectation that the system is gonna work for him. And that made me think of a story that I, I almost feel embarrassed to tell because it kind of, it shows my privilege of growing up. Oh, go ahead. Thank you, Ken. All right, yeah. <laughs> this is when I was in my late 20s. I was traveling abroad with some friends and one day, this was just a couple of days before Christmas, um, the, wor- the rooms where we were staying got broken into. So we were actually out at a, a church service, um, and the rooms got broken into, and the rooms were ransacked. I mean, they even took things like my Advil bottle and opened it and just strew everything out. And we were robbed. And I didn't actually have a lot of value with me. I was a little bit more... Um, I traveled a little bit more than some of my friends, but my friend Angelica had a really nice camera with a really big lens and a laptop and some money, and my Norwegian friend lost his passport. And having grown up, white, middle-class American, I wasn't used to feeling like unsafe in my home base spaces, if that makes sense. You know, I'm like all women, I have felt um, unsafe in many places. Certainly after coming out, I feel unsafe in many more places. Um, But like at that point, like my home base space, I was used to being safe. And that was a newer feeling to me. And it was my privilege to expect to feel safe. And even though I knew in my head that justice systems don't always work, um, either here or in other countries, I still felt like entitled. I could feel my American entitlement to some form of like semi-efficient reporting system 
because everything in my life to that point told me I had a right to make my complaint and have some kind of follow through. So we called the local police who took hours to show up. And when they finally did, they wanted a pretty big bribe to take a report. And then on top of the bribe for making the report, they wanted an extra, I was trying to remember, I think it was like 50 American to, to list every item stolen. And there were like seven or eight items. So we were fairly sure we actually knew who the robbers were. They were staying in the same guest house as us and we figured they were probably hours away by then. So of course we didn't end up filing anything. Now I wasn't totally like naive or unaware of broken systems, right? I was like, I studied colonialism and the civil rights uh, movement as a history major in college. It was like, I knew it up here, but it was the first time in my life where I actually like felt in my bones, like the, the injustice of not being able to do something, to not have any power whatsoever over the unfairness of that situation, because there was no one to report to. You couldn't even go to the press. And that's like, it's so minor, right? I, I know there are parts of Detroit where you have to wait hours for the police to come. A friend of mine grew up in Detroit and she talked about how like when they got robbed, they would have to wait for hours. And there are so many people who do not get a semblance of justice in our American courts, you know, which I'm sure all you people of color are like, um, hello, yeah, or people who are immigrants. But unfortunately, this is the part that's embarrassing to me. It's like I knew it up here, but it actually took a little peek of feeling it to really open my empathy quite a bit wider for people on the underside of power. And I think this is what Job is feeling. I think he's feeling something like that. Right? And I wonder if he's really understood the utter misery that a lot of humans live with until he suffered himself. And he was so distraught at the contrast of what he had known and what was happening to him that it made him suicidal. Right? Job chapter 3, I, I picked out a few of the, the choice verses from this chapter that he's um, kind of falling apart. He says, Annul the day that I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived, that day let it be darkness. Let God above not seek it out, nor brightness shine upon it. Let its twilight stars go dark. Let it hope for day in vain. I love this, I love this line, it's so poetic. Let it not see the eyelids of dawn. For before my bread, my moaning comes, and my roar pours out like water. Like, picture that, before my bread, like I guess before my breakfast, my moaning comes and my roar pours out like water. For I feared a thing, it befell me. What I dreaded came upon me. And this sudden calamity made him question why, why do people who do evil things seem to thrive while people who have integrity seem to fail sometimes? Job 21, why do the wicked live? Why do they grow wit, rich and gather wealth? Their seed is firm founded before them, their offspring before their eyes. This could be like our prayer today. Their homes are safe from fear. God's rod is not against them. They pass their days in bounty. In an instant, they go down to the Sheol. Sheol is the realm of the dead in the Old Testament. In other words, even when they die, they don't suffer. It happens in an instant. And so Job has to now make sense of this new information about the world and how God fits into that. And his so-called friends, right, these people who are like affluent, they were his equals before all of this befell him. They haven't undergone the same kind of suffering that he has and they don't share his confidence in his own innocence. Right, so they're not compelled to give up the security or the safety of their orderly belief system because it's working for them. If you were good, things would be going well. Right? This can't happen to me because I'm doing, I'm doing good things. You must have been evil. And in that same way, I think that's why it's hard to motivate a lot of like, white Americans to think about um, rethinking the justice system. 
right, that the injustices disproportionately affect people of color, especially black, uh, black Americans and immigrants. So we've got this empathy gap for people who are less affected because the system works better for people like me, right? So why bother to change it? Or like people who stay in faith traditions that exclude women leaders or LGBTQ, right? They stay because the system works for them. And they're not entirely sure if they would admit it that people like me are innocent, right? I know it. And like Job, like Job, I mean, I'll plead my case before God. I feel vindicated by God. But it's hard for people to step outside of faith frameworks when those frameworks are working. But here Job's gotten a taste of what life is like for a lot of humans who are impoverished and mistreated and he gets sores all over his body. And so now he understands better what it's like to have like a debilitating chronic illness and his world is just blown open. And Job is just telling us that we are all more vulnerable than we would like to think, which is not a message that we like to hear. And I think the text invites us to ask if we can overcome the collapse of our former, maybe naive concepts of faith and justice. And so that's why I think Job is actually a pretty relevant book for our congregation because most of us here have had to do some of that hard work of forging a new way forward in faith or else maybe we're still working on whether or not faith will work for us at all. So I know last week I shared a little bit of my story um, about my faith, like I grew up fundamentalist, kind of an evangelical Pentecostal, and that worldview worked for me until it didn't. Right? And it didn't all collapse around me at once like it did for Job, but it kind of went down like one domino at a time as I've moved through my life. And I think the story of Job encourages us that faith can persevere in those moments, even when we feel confused and let down and sort of deceived even by our faith scaffolding. And so I wanted to say that especially for those of you who maybe you're newer or you're just entering into some of these spaces where you've, you feel like your faith has been collapsing around you, to be encouraged by the book of Job, that your faith can in fact move forward um, and that you can, you can experience God's presence in the midst of that. So what does the text tell that we can do about this? I'll be honest, I think it's a little incomplete and it's a little bit unsatisfying, but there are a couple of thoughts that I, I want to offer you. First is that Job maintains a connection to God throughout the book, right? He never start, stops talking to God. He never stops expecting God to listen. And when I think about my own life, I think the main thing that has kept me Christian, if I'm being totally honest, is just this connection to this God that I understand as love. So like even when things weren't yet making sense in my head, like even when I was railing at God or testing out what life might be like without any sort of faith, even then I still felt secure in that love. And I don't know if that makes entire sense, um, but I have this distinct memory of being in college. I went to Butler University, which I think their basketball team's doing awesome this year, by the way. So I went to Butler and I remember, um, you know, some of my faith was crumbling because of sort of that, I grew up like a young earth creationist and I was, I was kind of working out my science stuff. And I remember taking a walk really late one night on campus and it was snowing. And so it was really, it was dark and it was really peaceful. And I remember going and sitting on this little bench that was surrounded by some pine trees and the snow was just sort of gently falling. And I remember telling God um, that I was super mad at them and that I didn't believe in them anymore. But I was still talking to God as if God would listen and could handle that. And I see that sort of same inclination reflected in Job. Like when I read that part of Job, I'm like, oh, I get you. And I think that's why so many of the spiritual disciplines are geared toward helping us maintain that connection with God. Because if we at least have an understanding or a feeling that there is a God who loves us and that that is the foundation, then I think our faith can withstand a lot of storms.
The second little thought that I got from Job that is related to the first is that perhaps God speaks more harshly to Job um, than we would maybe like for him to, or at least than I would like for him to, because Job's former status made it so that maybe he did need to be put in his place a little bit. Job chapter 12, this is Job talking about his life before. Those were the days when I went to the city gate and I sat at the public meeting of the elders. And when the young men saw me coming, they stepped out of my way. (laughs) Oh, to be Job. (laughs) And the old men stood up and they showed that they respected me. The leaders of the people, they stopped talking and they put their hands over their mouths. Even the most important leaders were quiet as if their tongues were stuck to the roofs of their mouth. All who heard me said good things about me because of how I helped the poor when they cried out. I helped the orphans who had nobody to care for them. People who were dying would ask God to bless me. My help brought joy to the widows in need. My right living was my clothing. I mean, can you imagine knowing this guy? Fairness was my robe and my turban. I was like eyes for the blind. I was like feet for the crippled. Oh my gosh. I was a father to the poor. I helped people I didn't even know win their case in court. I stopped evil people. I mean, he goes on. I stopped evil people from abusing their power. I saved innocent people from them. I always thought I would live a long life growing old with my family around me. Maybe that guy needed a little like, okay, Job, like let's tone it down a little bit here. Job thought a lot of himself. And I admit that's not like an entirely satisfying explanation, but it was a little bit helpful for me. And last but not least, I think Job points to the importance of practicing empathy, which I think most of us also value here. Right, that's part of why we try and cultivate empathy in our kids and our youth programs. It's try, why we try to um, read scholars that are from minorities, from different vantage points as we're looking through the faith stories so that we're getting a different understanding of the stories as we um, pass along our faith stories. It's why we read things like The Hate You Give. You know, studies have shown that people who read fiction have higher levels of empathy than other people. And in the end, if I can look at Job through this lens, I think he ends up a wiser man because he starts to recognize the limitations of his former viewpoint. I don't know if anybody can give that an amen. For me, I'm like, okay, I saw the limits of it. I think I have a few more questions or thoughts that I can offer as other people are also moving down that path. And my hope, I'm just gonna give a little thought on the last chapter of Job, the one that's so insulting. My hope is that that last chapter is there to show us that Job, right? He's this man who cried out in pain and wished that he had never been born. I'm hoping it's there to show us that he's found hope again, right? To show us that he's actually resilient enough that he's been able to rebuild his faith and his life, right? And that it's not a literal replacement of his family, but it's like a, look, life can go on. It can actually be happy and healthy and prosperous after you hit these these sort of stumbling blocks, so to speak, because the ending is still a little bit insulting, and I think it's a little bit clumsily executed, but I think if we look at it the way Rabbi Greenberg invites us to, that 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 can help us um, maybe get a little bit more access to Job. That's all I have this morning. We now are going to do our meditation. We usually take two or three minutes of either guided meditation or silent, um, just quiet time. People and babies make noise, so don't worry about a little bit of noise. We haven't done just sort of a quiet silence for a while. And so what I would like to invite you to do is just relax, take some deep breaths, if you would like. I thought, let's just um, make some space to 
Just feel the, the, the presence of, of God, however you understand this God, this God of love around you. And if you have something that's been particularly on your mind or on your heart this morning that you're coming here with, maybe you just want to talk to God about it. And if not, maybe you're just in a great place. Maybe you just sit there and just sort of, can you to say pickle in God's love and maybe just offer some thanksgiving. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here. We ask that your presence would make itself known to us as we invite you. I don't often do this, but I feel like I have a, a picture that might be helpful to someone. Um, what I'm seeing is like a, almost like a 10-foot wall that's like an obstacle course wall. And at the top, there's like a platform. Um, and the picture was like Jesus just throwing down a rope. And it wasn't just a rope to help you, but actually had like knots in it that would help you get up. So I'm just, I'm just going to pray into that if that means something to you. Um, so Jesus, I know sometimes that when we, when we hit these sort of uh, either faith walls or maybe they're walls in our personal lives, uh, things going on at work or with our families, that it's hard to experience your presence in those places. And in those spaces, Lord, um, we ask that like Job, that we would still at least experience your presence, your helpful presence, like throwing us a lifeline. And we would ask that we would be able to recognize when those are thrown to us and ask that we could like tangibly experience your presence as we're walking through our week, um, that you would bring your comfort and your peace, and that you would give us assurance that you're with us, come what may, um, that no matter what life throws at us, that um, we'll just, we'll feel the assurance of your love and of your acceptance in our lives. I ask that in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Amen.